but we got this week and next week to finish up. And I want to start, uh, some of you know this because you follow me on Facebook or whatever, you just know me, but you, this guy showed up in our house, uh, showed up in our house, I went to get him, but he showed up in our house end of February of this year. Um, his name is Zion, he's a, he's a full-blooded German shepherd, he's my final German shepherd, that's why he's my Z-litter, that's why his name's Zion. Uh, that's what he looked like when we got him, cute, cuddly. This is what he looks like five months later. Um, he's about 100 pounds right now, and he's seven and a half months old. This dog's going to be big. I knew that when I picked him. Uh, I, I can't blame anybody for that. I knew that his father's 130 pounds. He's the biggest uh, pup of a litter of 10, and he's going to be at least 130 pounds. He's a big dog. Now, I knew that. You know, intellectually, I've always known that when I got Zion, he was going to be a big dog. But you don't fully understand what that means until you see that bigness in your house. You know, when you have your house for scale and you start seeing, here's a picture I took uh, last night. Uh, this is him. Now, I don't know if you can tell, that's his door there for scale. He's lying in front of. And from the back end, top of his back end to the, top, to the bottom of his paw, he completely covers that doorway. Uh, and um, unfortunately, that's my bedroom door, and it opens inward. And this picture was taken at 2 a.m. when I got up to go to the bathroom. Uh, now, also, unfortunately, when he sleeps, he is literally dead to the world, some watchdog. Um, you can't get him, you can't rouse him from this sleep. During the day, he is, but man, when he gets there in, in the bedroom, he just, boom, he's out. Um, now, we provide him with a bed, just so you all know. We're not cruel owners. We provide him with a bed, which is nowhere near the door, and he prefers to sleep by the door, which means if you wake up in the middle of the night, like I was here, and you need to go to the bathroom, you need to get rid of this a uh, Wookiee-based rug here in front of your door, and you're kind of just grabbing things and moving him. The good news is he's furry, so he slides. And, you know, you slide, and he kind of looks at you like, what am I doing? You know, and it's like floating around, and it, get it out. Um, so probably about three times a week or so, uh, Victoria says, what were you thinking? 130-pound dog, what were you thinking? And I'll tell you what I was thinking. It's two words. It's this, gentle giant. Because the last dog I had wasn't either of those. Um, he was a sub 100 pound German Shepherd, and those of you who know that story, uh, he, he eventually would turn aggressive and we would have to put him down because it was like having a 90 pound weapon in your house with a hairpin trigger that can go off at any moment. And I realized I couldn't guarantee the safety of my family or others. And we had to make a very, very painful decision of putting him down at about age five. And I thought, I'm never going to go through that again. Plus the fact there's a possibility not that there's any rush kids, that we'll have grandkids in our house you know, in the next few years. And I wanted to make sure that I wasn't ever gonna have a situation where you know, I had to worry about, because kids love dogs and they'll go up and, and so I, I was doing my research and I found this subbreed of the breed of German Shepherds. These are known as old fashioned German Shepherds, sometimes called giant German Shepherds, you can understand why. Uh, but they have a reputation from being very docile, especially with children, they're gentle, giants. And the reason I'm talking about my dog isn't just I love excuses to talk about my dog, although I do. Uh, it's because the next word we're on here in our list is gentleness. Also sometimes translated as meekness in some translations. But this is the word that means gentleness, mildness, or meekness. And the reason why I want to start with this picture of my giant German shepherd, the gentle one, is because I think this is another one of those fruits that I'm going to have to sell a little bit to some of the people here. That, that was like patience. We kind of had to sell patience a little bit. Uh, but I mean, I hope that you see that patience is a very valuable fruit of the spirit to have. But I think especially to guys, gentleness and meekness just really aren't things we were grown up wanting to have. I mean, I hang around guys a lot in all kind of different, you know, 
counseling in the church. I do that. Uh, just hanging out in church. Uh, bandmates. Uh, I've played you know, hockey with them. I've been in theater with them. I get every, every situation you can imagine. You know, I hung out with guys. It's what you know, we do. And in my entire life, I've heard men brag about many things. I have never heard them brag about their meekness. You know, I've never heard in the locker room you're putting on a gear to go play hockey. You know, I am just so meek. No, you're not meek. I'm meek. Now, you never hear that, you know, hashtag arguments you've never heard. You know, it's just like it, it, you would never hear that, but, but you really can't blame the guys because I'm pretty sure in high school over the girls' table, they weren't walking together, sitting down and saying, oh, Debbie, I saw Brad. Oh, he is so meek. It's just like I just so... Nobody kind of talks in these terms, especially about guys. You know, we, we hear meekness and we think weakness. We hear gentleness and we think feebleness. In other words, you are gentle or you are meek because you have to be. You know, you're a wimp. And, and you hide in a corner quivering because that you're meek. That's how we think. Meek is a mouse. You know, mice aren't brave. They go running as soon as they see light. And so we have this kind of a thing where we think that that's what it is. But that's not the biblical definition of what meekness is or gentleness. And the definition is a lot closer to that German Shepherd I was talking about. And uh, I want to show you a picture. Now, now, he's a puppy still. He's seven and a half months old. He's still a puppy. Uh, and so puppies aren't known to be gentle, really, honestly. He's not that gentle. But you can already see traces of the dog he's going to become. So I'm going to show you a little video clip. This was taken by someone else uh, from a puppy class he was in when he was about four months old. And the very first bit of it, you're going to see this dog go and hide underneath of a chair. That's the, that's the star of the show. Uh, his name is Pacino. He's a, he was a four-month-old um, pit bull. But he'd been, he'd been attacked by another dog in his kennel. And he was kind of a rescue because he, he was afraid of everything. And boy, these puppy classes I've ever been in, it's like Wild Kingdom meets Cirque du Soleil. It's, it's just craziness, right, everywhere. And, and so um, as soon as they, you get there, they take everybody off leash. And they go running around <laughs> like puppies. And this poor dog was scared. Well, boom, it like hit underneath his uh, master's chair the whole time the puppies played. It had nothing to do with them. Uh, and then after that, you kind of leech them up and you get a lecture of the day. I think, you know, how to take care of your dog's teeth or something. And then, you know, you weigh them and you go home. That's all it is. It's just kind of a puppy gathering. So it's going to start out, you're going to see uh, this, this little pit bull, Pacino. That's him there. And he goes running, right, and that's where he stayed for the rest of the time. Now later on, while he came out, he came out to see Zion. And you can see how Zion re responds to him. This dog is scared to death of Zion, and Zion senses that. And so he never does anything that's going to really take him over the edge. And the dog keeps coming back and keeps coming back. And this goes on for a very long time. It takes Zion a very long time to encourage him to come back over. But I like how those pit bulls walk. They kind of look like, uh, do you remember Pokey, the, the, the Gumby you know, horse? I don't know if you guys were, but that kind of reminds me of. But he, he allows him to come in and, and everything. And do you know why Zion's okay with this dog jumping at him? And because Zion knows in a million years that puppy's not hurting him, right? He could be completely at ease, and he was the only pup who could be because he was the biggest pup in the thing because he didn't have to worry about that pup hurting him. Now, maybe when he's a full-grown pit bull, it's a different story. But at that moment, this, this puppy is simply not going to hurt that puppy because he is confident in his power, and that's the point. Gentleness, meekness, is power under control. It's not that I'm meek because I have to be. It's because I'm meek because I choose to be, and that's why the Bible talks about it. Because God also talks about giving us power. You can't be giving power to people who aren't meek and gentle, or they will hurt people with it. 
And we've seen this. We've seen it happen over and over and over again. In fact, in James, he says this, the wisdom that is from above, that's from the Lord, is first pure and then peaceable and then is gentle. It's willing to yield. It's full of mercy and good fruits. This is what we've been talking about, the good fruits of the Spirit, without partiality and without hypocrisy. He's saying this is what we're supposed to be. This is what, when God gives us these fruits from above, it needs to be coming with peaceable and gentleness Otherwise, we're going to really not be showing the kind of Christianity that Jesus calls us to show. And so this is, of course, the verse that launched this series, this Galatians 5, when we're talking about the fruits of the Spirit. But I want to show it again because the, the, the point is, if you have been living the life that God told you to live, and these fruits are coming evident in your life, then by now you have God's power in your life. Because that's what's coming with the fruit, is God's power. Now, I know that's a little bit dangerous thing to say because people get power hungry. Oh, tell me more how I can get this power, Pastor. It's not like that. It's not your power. It's not even power you have access to like you're some wizard. It's God's power in your life. But it's still powerful. And it, in fact, it's so powerful that the world wants it without knowing it. And they're, they're literally running around trying to get this kind of a life that if you have this fruit in your life, you have, they just don't know how to do it. And they're running around trying to do it. It starts with love. You know, it starts with love. The very first thing is when God loves you, we understand God loves you as a choice. You know, God, God didn't look down from heaven and go, oh, look, Mark's last week, you know, Mark's doing a Dr. Seuss poem. That's so adorable. I love it when he does. It's not like he saw me do something and he loves me. He loves me. He loves me. Even when I don't do something, he finds adorable. He still loves me because it's a choice. God chooses to love you. That's why he loves you, not because you're adorable. You may be adorable to him, but that's because he loves you, not the other way around. We switch that. If you're adorable, I'll love you. If you're not adorable, stay away from me. Right? And, and so that's the problem. And, and so once you realize that God's love and you realize you can give it to others, you can choose to li- love whomever you want, uh, you start seeing there's a whole new power in your life in, in love because that'll change marriages, it'll change families, it'll change situations. If you can love anybody then it'll change the way your situation is. And then that brings joy. Joy, which is not rooted in our circumstance, but rather in God who never changes. It brings joy. Peace comes when God comes into your life. He casts out fear that you're left with peace. The world doesn't know what that looks like, any of that. It doesn't know what any of that looks like. And so it's trying to get find love. It's trying to find peace. It's trying to find happiness, not joy. And it doesn't understand. And, so, and, and actually, the world runs around a little bit like my other German shepherd. To be honest with you, my, my black German shepherd had turned angry. He actually had deep pain problems, and he was afraid of it. So he had pain and hurt in his life, and he became afraid of anybody triggering that pain. He was very pain adverse. And so to prevent himself from getting hurt, he would preemptively strike. If he thought you might hurt him is when he came on to attack. And he couldn't help himself because he was so afraid of the pain. I meet people all the time who have deep pain in their lives, and they respond by attacking. And they're just trying to, they're trying to hide from the pain. You know, they're, they're afraid of their pain. They're living in fear. You will either be led by the Spirit in your life or you'll be driven by the devil. That's your two choices. Led by the Spirit, driven by the devil. And the devil drives with fear and pain. That's how the devil drives. And so if you're living a life of fear and pain, guess where it's coming from? Not the Lord. Because the Lord doesn't cause this. The Lord leads. And so when he's saying, I need you to have gentleness, it's I'm going to give you power in your life that the world actually wants. And it's going to be amazing because some people are going to be drawn to you because of that. Some people are going to run from you because of that. And some people are going to attack you because of that. But you need to be comfortable in the power that is the Lord. And because of that, 
you won't find yourself running after and, and acting like the world. We're not supposed to act like the world. By this time, when we have all these things in our life, we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to react differently. The world can react like that because they're just simply being driven from place to place in fear and in pain. But we're over that now. We should be. We should have peace. We should have patience, kindness, and goodness. We should have faith. As we see what God does, that faith grows into trust. And we start seeing, by this time, God's miracles in our lives. We start seeing miracles take place in our life. And now, we really should be comfortable and comfortable enough to be gentle giants. Jesus tells us this. He said, look, the thief, that's the devil, will come to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they can have life and have it abundantly. That's what he's talking about. I'm going to give you fruits of the Spirit in your life, which is abundant life. You're going to learn to be content in all things. That's what Paul said. I've learned to content with, be content with nothing. I've been learned content in a feast. Either one, I'm content. He's learned how to be content. He could praise the Lord on the mountaintop. He could praise the Lord in the prison. Circumstances never mattered to Apostle Paul. He just stayed focused on the joy of the Lord in his life. And when we get there, we start realizing the world is really attacking you because they want what you have and don't know how to get it. So I'm going to show you an example of power under control. The best one I can show you, it's, uh, it's a, the best example we could have is Jesus Christ. I'm going to show you something you maybe never thought of as a power, but what's happening here in this, in this sequence of things, and I'm going to be following along basically John's account with one scripture from Matthew thrown in, but uh, what's happening here is there's a power struggle. There's a power struggle between the greatest power on earth at the time, the Roman Empire, and Jesus Christ. There's a power struggle that's going to take place. Now, this would have been over in no time, except Jesus operates gently and meekly and holds back his power. I'm going to show this to you. Maybe you've never looked at it in those contexts. But so what happens in, we pick up the story in John 18, is they've just had what we call the Last Supper, but it was Passover dinner. For those of you who come to our Passover, that's what they had. They had a Passover. And after they were done there, they went out into the garden where Jesus liked to go to pray. And Judas knew that, the one who was betraying him. So he cut out early to lead people. He knew they'd be in the garden. So he's going to go. And they're going to arrest him in the middle of the night. Now that tells you right there they're afraid of him. If you're not afraid of somebody, he's going to knock on the door in the broad daylight and take him out. You go arrest somebody in the middle of the night because you're afraid. So already you can see that they understand this inherent power that is in Jesus Christ. And they're afraid of him. And so um, he, Judas gets the attachment of troops and uh, officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, and they come there with lanterns, torches, weapons. So they're coming with all this power. Now, this word for detachment is actually a, a cohort, which is about anywhere from 120 to 200 men. Now, I don't think they were all in the garden. I think they left some of them at the horses. But they probably had 20, 30, 40 uh, soldiers from the Roman Empire, all with weapons, to get Jesus Christ. Think about that. <laughs> He's a rabbi. He doesn't have a weapon to his name, but they come in the middle of the night with an entire army, basically, to capture him because they're afraid of him that much. These are battle-hardened veterans. These are people who are far away from Rome, which was their home, and they hate the Jews because they don't like where they are. They just want to get back home. They want to serve their time in the army. They want to go back home. That's what they want to do. And they really don't like all this you know, political machinations of the Jews. They don't like it. So they're angry to be out in the middle of the night. This is late at night because this is after Passover is over and after Jesus is prayed. So hours have gone by. And so they're in the middle of the night and they're just really frustrated and angry 
And boy, you know, as soon as they get their hands on Jesus, you can imagine what they want to do with him. And so they come here like that, and Jesus knew everything was happening. God had already revealed to him everything was going to happen to him. And so Jesus, knowing all things that would come, went forward and asked, who are you seeking? Now his disciples are scared. The Roman army just showed up. And this isn't a good thing, especially if you're a Jew. Jesus walks calmly forward, and everybody else kind of backs off, and he says, who are you looking for? And they said, we are looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, that's me. And watch what happens. Um, Judas was there as well. And as soon as he says, that's me, they all fell back and fell to the ground. It's like somebody threw a grenade and it's the explosion knocked them all back onto the ground. Now that makes no sense at all. I don't know if you've ever read that verse and go, that is the weirdest thing. What's going on? They said, we're looking for Jesus. And so, oh, that's me. And instead of, oh, good, we were looking for you. <laughs> you know, grab them, boys. Now, they all fall back like, like a grenade went off, like a concussion flashbang went off is what this is like. Boom. That's the, 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 the Greek here. That's the, the verb that they use when they fell back. It isn't just like, oh, st- no, it's a boom, like it got blown back by a bomb. And the reason why we don't understand the importance of what just happened is because our translators, in order to make this read better, actually have changed what Jesus said that day because that's not what he says. He doesn't say, I am he. It just reads better that way. What he actually says is, I am. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am that I am. He declares, his, he declares the name of God. That's what he says. And that one thing, him declaring his name, was so powerful, it knocked the Roman army back. But we shouldn't be surprised, right? Because he's, he can cast out demons with his little finger. He can, he can bring down whole armies with the word. This should not surprise us. We're talking about the word of the one who created the world with his words. This is an amazingly powerful person we're talking about, and this is the kind of power he has. All he has to do is declare who he is, and they can't stand it. The glory of God can't be witnessed by man. Remember that from Moses? Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. <laughs> you can't see my glory, Moses. Tell you what, I put you in this little tiny rock, I put my hand over you, and I walk by you, and you can see my glory as it passes you. How about that? And that was Moses, who was a righteous man. He couldn't see the glory of God. When Jesus peels back the curtain for just a second and said, I am, boom, they all got blown up. This is an amazing power thing. But Jesus isn't into this for the power trip, and he's not trying to avoid them. At this point, he could walk away. Oh, guess they're done. Let's go, boys. And he could have left. But he didn't. He goes back and says, stand up. What, what's going on? But he showed them a glimpse of who he was. Now they understood why they had 200 people there. And so they, they, they will take him, and they, they, they will take him, they pick him up, they arrest him, they lead him away, they take him to the Jews first, because that was the idea. They're going to bring him to the Jews, and the high priest is going to question him, but Jesus won't even talk to him. Because Jesus knows why this is all happening. He understands fully what's going on. This is the purpose he came to earth. And he's already prayed if there's any way he could avoid it. And his father said, no, there isn't. And so he is committed now to fulfill the prophecy and fulfill the plan of redemption for all of us. So he doesn't even mess around with the high priest. He just says, you know, look, I I preached openly. Why are you coming at me in the middle of the night? Uh, This is silly. And so they take him then to the next step which is the Roman governor. So they, they lead him in the praetorium. Now this is because uh, they, could not go, they could not go in because it's owned by Gentiles. That's the Roman justice center. 
and, and they can't go in there because they're getting ready to do the Passover feast themselves. And because of that, they don't want to enter into a Gentile dwelling place because it makes them unclean enough to go through all the ceremonial cleansing. So they stay outside and they call out to the governor of the area, a guy named Pontius Pilate, who has become kind of famous because of all of this. Now, Pontius Pilate's an interesting character uh, because we don't know much about him. What we do know about him, though, isn't good. Beyond what the Bible said about him, an early uh, century uh, Jewish historian who lived after this time, but not much after this time, a guy named Josephus, and he wrote a bunch of things that kind of fill in some of the history for us that uh, we have found. He's considered a very credible history source. He tells us that what will eventually happen, just so you understand with Pontius Pilate who this is, is he will be recalled to Rome because he was too cruel to the people in his area. He was going to put down a rebellion that didn't exist and kill so many people that even Rome was horrified. I mean, if you've, if you've taken a look at Roman history, brutality is almost rewarded in Rome. It's unbelievable some of the acts of brutality of the Roman Empire. This was so bad, even Rome said, whoa, you know, Pontius, uh, come back, we got to answer this. It's like, this is like you sin so bad, even the devil distanced himself from you. It's like, this is like really bad, right? And uh, fortunately for Pontius, uh, Tiberius, who recalls him, dies while he's en route, and a guy named Caligula takes over, and then everybody's off busy doing other things, so he never gets punished for it. But he was supposed to be punished because he's just that bad. He's evil. He, he has no problem punishing the people under him. And this clearly has happened before where the Jews have brought people they want killed to him, and he just does it. He doesn't need much of an excuse at all. Pilate goes out, and they wake him up. This is late. He's in bed with his wife. They wake him up, and he comes out, and he says, why are you bringing this guy here? And what they, they, they kind of be, try to be vague, because these are Pharisees. They're trying to follow the rules, because this is what Pharisees do, but they want to do something really against the rules. That's have Jesus killed. They say, well, uh, if he weren't evil, we wouldn't be bringing him. So they don't really tell him uh, why they bring him. Just, well, look, obviously he's a bad guy. We brought him to you. And so Pilate says, well, take care of him yourself according to your own laws. Why are you bring him to me? Why are you waking me up in the middle of the night? And they said, well, we're not permitted to put anybody to death. And they weren't. No one was allowed to do that except the governor of Judea, which is Pontius Pilate. They'd already known they're going to put him to death. How's that for a trial? We're going to give you a fair trial. They're going to hang you. You know, that's kind of a thing. We're going to kill you, but we're going to give you a fair trial first. And so that's what they're saying. We, we can't put anybody to death and, and we want that to happen. We, we, so we need you to do it. We can't do it. And so um, Pontius then says, okay, fine. So he comes inside. Pontius goes. He puts on his robes. He comes in. And this whole thing's set up. I don't know if you've ever been in a courtroom, uh, especially the old-fashioned courtrooms. But they're set up with a power structure in place. The judge sits way up high. Right? So he's looking down on the defendant. And the defendant's in this little area. And so the judge gets to talk to him, and, and it echoes in the chamber. And, he, and you know, so there's this power there, right? It's all orchestrated like that. So the person on trial really feels like, oh, man, I got I to gotta cow down to, to this person. I got to make sure that he finds mercy in me. And so he gets there, and he sits down, and he stares down at Jesus, who's standing there tied. And Jesus doesn't say anything. That's unusual. Because there's only one reason a person's brought in the middle of the night to Pontius Pilate and that's to be crucified, which is one of the most horrible deaths there is. And beyond painful, it's entirely humiliating. And no one wants to have it done. And so usually by the time Pontius gets there in all of his regalia, they're begging for their lives. You know, they're talking a blue streak. They're trying to explain to him why, why they've been framed. They didn't do it. This wasn't true. Instead, Jesus stands quietly. And so Pontius tries to provoke him a little bit. He says, oh, okay, well... 
So I'm looking at the king of the Jews. Is that right? So kind of poke him a little bit. So he wants to get him talking because, by the way, you're not allowed to be the king of the Jews. There's already a king, Herod, who was installed as a puppet king by the emperor. And if you're claiming to be king, then you are leading an insurrection against him. And they have the right, under Roman law, to crucify you because you can't, you can't have that running around, people leading insurrections. So he's trying to get him to admit, yeah, I'm, I'm the king, I'm the rightful king of Judea. And okay, we're done here. You know, have him crucified. Instead, Jesus watches him. He says, so, you're the king of the Jews. He says, did, did you come at that on your own, or did the Jews tell you to say that? In other words, I, I absolutely know what's going on here. You know, you're not fooling me. And, he, and this, kind of, this kind of rankles Pontius a little bit, because Jesus has rightly said, well, look, you're just a puppet for the Jews. And that boy, he doesn't like that at all. And so he said, I'm not a Jew. Am I? <laughs> like, I like how he throws it. Um, your own nation, your chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? So I didn't do this. They did this. They brought you to me. I'm out of bed. I'm listening to you now. Tell me, what have you done? And what Jesus answers him is not what he expects. He says, look, my kingdom is not of this world. In fact, you know that because if it were, my servants would have been fighting to keep me from being here. By the way, Peter kind of tried and Jesus stopped him. So, but if, if I were a king of this world, my people would be here right now trying to, trying to stop this from happening. But they're not here, and they're not here because I'm going to be handed over the Jews, and my kingdom's not part of this realm, so this has nothing to do with this. Which almost like Jesus says, so Pontius Pilate, I don't know what you're doing here because you've got no authority over any of this. This is out of your realm. And, and so Pontius now is, is kind of a little bit perplexed. He's going to act out of character, by the way, for the rest of this whole sequence. Way out of character for him. So you can see he's gotten shaken up a little bit by Jesus and how he's just so calmly talking to him. And he's no, he knows scared people. He knows fear. He's seen it many times. He also knows power. He's seen that many times. And he realizes he's not standing in front of someone who's scared. He's standing in front of someone who's powerful. And so you can see a change kind of comes over Pontius because he's trying to figure out what this is. This is just some guy. I don't understand this, but I know power when I see it, and I know fear when I see it, and I don't see fear, I see power. And so he says, okay, so you're saying you are a king. Is that what you're saying? Now, remember, you dropped the king of Jews now. You are a king. You're some, some kind of king. And Jesus said, okay, you're right, I am. In fact, for this I was born, for this I've come into the world, Here's, here it is, and boy, he's ready now you know, to lead a rebellion against the Rome, to see the Roman. There's many things that, that some kind of a, a, a leader of a rebellion would say now. Here's why I'm here. I was brought for this purpose, and then he finishes it by saying, to tell the truth. I'm here to testify to truth. That's what I am. I came here to speak truth. And in fact, everyone who, hear, uh, who is of the truth, who, who also seeks truth, they will hear my voice. I really believe this is Jesus, because Jesus always does this, trying to reach out to Pilate. Are you seeking the truth? Because if you're seeking the truth, I have more to say to you. I'm here to speak the truth. Anybody who seeks the truth will hear what I'm saying. And this is, I believe, an invitation, because Jesus is always giving invitations, always trying to redeem. And Pontius says one of the most interesting verses in the Bible. He says, what is truth? You're here to testify truth? I don't even know what truth is. By the way, what a horrible thing to have the judge who's deciding you say, I have no idea what truth is. Well, how are you going to judge this then? Isn't that your job to, det to detect truth and judge on truth? 
And, and so he says, I don't, even, I don't even know what truth is. Which is interesting because what he's doing is actually confessing something to Jesus. I've been doing this job for so long, just doing what Rome tells me and all this. I don't know what's right anymore. He's confessing and admitting to the, the person in front of him, I have no idea what's going on anymore. I just do my job the best I can. I don't know. I don't know what truth is. I can't tell you that I know what truth is. This is, this is incredible. So actually, the, the power has begun to shift now. It's shifting from the place that he's sitting and is coming down to Jesus because he's starting to confess to Jesus, if you know truth, you know more than I do. I don't know truth. And so um, when this happened, and it probably was more of a byplay that we don't have written down, they go out again, he went to the Jews and watch what he says. I don't find any guilt in him. I don't find any guilt in him. I'm talking to him, we're talking here, I'm looking in his eyes. I don't see he's guilty of anything. I certainly don't see him guilty of insurrection, which you're accusing him of. And I want you to catch one thing's going to happen now. He says, uh, look, it's a custom that I have that I release someone to Passover. Why don't I just go ahead and release the king of the Jews to you? From this moment to the end of Jesus' death, he will always refer to him as the king of the Jews. Now, when the Jews brought him, they said, he said he is the king. And the Jews never want to accept him as the king. He's basically saying he's a fake, he's a phony, he's trying to raise a, raise a rebellion against the Roman Empire. We serve Caesar, please kill this guy so we don't, we don't end up being lumped in with him. So they don't, they don't ever say Jesus is the king of anything. But Pilate's made up his mind. He may not know truth, but he knows this, that man has power. I've never seen a man like that. He is truly the king of the Jews. He's a Jew, and that kind of power, he must be the king. He will never back off of that again. He will always refer to him as the king of the Jews because he recognizes the power that Jesus has. He says, why don't I go ahead and release him? Okay, maybe he said something he shouldn't have. What to say, forget it. We'll release him as part of the custom, and you can have, they said, no, 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 we want Barabbas, who's a robber and a thief. We want him. We don't want this guy. So he goes back inside. Now, here's something very peculiar that happens that's put in for the Matthew uh, 27. Now he gets a note. He goes back in to talk to Jesus some more, and he gets a note from his wife. I doubt this has ever happened before. Now, she knows he's meeting someone, but she has no idea who. They were in bed together, and then he had to get up, put on his robes, and go see what's going on. She went back to sleep. But she woke up, and she sent a note to him. And this is what the note said. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. I don't know who you're talking to. And this is, this is really credible because for all she knew, there's 10 men there. For all she knew, there's three women there. But somehow she woke up knowing he was talking to a man and that man was innocent. So she had a dream. She said, I have been troubled because of dreams. She had a nightmare and she woke up saying, oh my God, my husband's going to kill an innocent man and not just any innocent man. And she sent him a note, don't do it have nothing to do with this. Get away. That's probably never happened before, my guess, in the whole marriage between Pontius and his wife. I don't think she normally sent him notes in the middle of the night. Don't do this. But something's going on here. The power of heaven is rumbling over them. It's being held back and restrained by Jesus, but the power of heaven is rumbling over Rome. And this is, believe it or not, this is a pivotal moment because at any moment, Jesus can say, no, I'm not going to do this and just destroy everything in front of him. He has that power, but he's keeping it all under control. So he goes back. He says, okay, well, they want me to kill you. Here's what I'll do. I'm going to have you beat, and then I'm just going to release you. That's his plan. I'm not going to kill him, but at least I'll beat him so the Jews will be happy. So he has him a scourge, which is a whipping, 
And then he comes back out. He says, I'm going to bring him back out, and you'll see I found no guilt in him. And they put a crown of thorns on him. The, 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 uh, the Roman soldiers did that while they're beating him. And they also put a purple robe on, which is sim- symbolic of kingship. That's not his robe. That's actually a purple robe, which symbolizes kingship. Now, Pilate didn't tell him to throw the crown of thorns on. That was some Roman soldier's idea, right? And he says, look at this man now. Look at him. I beat him, but he's not guilty of anything. We need to let him go. And when the chief priests and the officers saw Jesus, they started shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate says, okay, you know what? You want to crucify him, you go on and do it. I find no guilt in him. And the Jew said, we have a law, and by that law, he ought to die. And here they slip because he made himself out to be the son of God. And all of a sudden, Pilate goes, oh, man, I thought he was just a king. Now it's starting to make sense. Something clicks in Pilate's mind. Son of God. Whoa, wait. He goes back in, and Pilate comes in. When he learned that statement, he was even more afraid. And he enters back in and says to Jesus, where are you from? Remember, Jesus said, I'm not from this world. Where are you from? I need to know. And here's the most frustrating part of the whole story to me. And Jesus said nothing. He gave no answer. He says nothing. And so Pilate says, don't you know who I am? You're not going to speak to me? Listen, I have the authority to release you, and I have the authority to crucify you. You're going to not talk to me? I'm the only guy here who can help you. Do you not know who I am? And Jesus said, you have no authority over me unless it was given to you by my Father. So I know who you are. I know exactly who you are. And I know the only reason I'm here is because my father wants me here, and I said yes. And what you guys do has nothing on me at all. You have no authority here. And Pilate, by this time, knew that, by the way. He knew. He probably, he's probably like, well, at least he's not going to kill me. You know, because he, he can sense this power there but that he doesn't have and he's never seen before. And Jesus said, listen, I'm here to be a sacrifice. You've got to do your job. You have no authority here. Just, you know, play this out. And so he does. But here's the thing that frustrates me. Why didn't Jesus say anything? He should have a speech here. If I were writing this as a movie script, he would have a speech here. You know, you always get a good speech, even if it's right before you die. You know, the gladiator, that great speech he gives. I'll have just vengeance this life or the next. You know, his great speech. Braveheart gave that great speech. Paints his face blue. You know, it's a great speech. He needs a great speech here. He says nothing. I'm like, you know, God, the greatest communicator in the world standing there, he needed a great speech. I just feel like it. Uh, so I'm, I'm praying about that. I was like, why did Jesus say nothing? He was speaking, and then when Pilate came back, he says, wait a minute, who are you? you? You said you're from another word. Where are you from? This is a great moment to really have a great speech about how you created the heavens and the earth and, and all that stuff. You could have done that, but Jesus says nothing. I'm like, why, why, why? And then it occurred to me, because Jesus' words have power. He can't speak here. If he says anything, it's over. Pot's going to say, well, I'm not touching this then. Because he'd completely believe it now. And it started out, he may have been skeptical. But if he says, well, I'm the son of God, he goes, well, that makes sense. That makes sense. And he would have walked away. Said, yep, yep, turn off the lights, we're going. We're not doing this. Jesus can't say anything at this point. Don't forget, he just knocked over 200 people with a word. Just a few days before, he cursed a fig tree and it died. I mean, his words have incredible amount of power. He can't possibly say a word. This is power under control. Because just a word changes everything. 
So the power of heaven met the power of earth. Heaven wins, but it conceded. I'm going to keep it under control because there's a purpose for Jesus dying. And that purpose must be fulfilled. And so Jesus says nothing and lets it happen. But we have to see that God's power, this same kind of power that we're talking about, is what's in us. When we have these fruits showing up in our lives, you know, when we have God's joy and God's peace, that's power you can't imagine. Because the world would pay a million dollars for that if it could. But it's not for sale. God's power is in us. In Ephesians, Paul, Paul says, calls it great power. He says, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance, the incomparably great power for us who believe. So I, I hope you know that. I hope you understand the great power that he has entrusted to you. And I want you to know this, the same power, the same strength that he used to raise Christ Jesus from the dead is now in you. That's an amazing amount of power. And he's saying, I'm giving it to you. It's in your life because God wants you to be his representative here on earth. The same power Jesus was walking with is available to us. And this comes from the fruit of the Spirit. But it's not given to us so we can throw it at others. Sometimes we want to use power for a purpose, our purpose. And, and, you know, someone comes up to you and they're barking like a dog and, you know, they're angry and they're, 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 they're just trying to hide their own fear and they're trying to hide their own hurt and their own pain and, and we react in kind. God says, no, 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 no. That's not why I'm giving you this power. I don't want you to act like a regular human being. I want you to act like a superhero, my superhero, with my power in you. You're not supposed to be acting like regular others who, who are being driven by fear and pain. You're not driven by fear and pain, Remember? You have peace, joy, love, patience. You, you, you shouldn't be like that. Sometimes when people come up and they attack you, for whatever reason, we, we just respond to the attack. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're better than that. You maybe were that, but I'm, I'm, I'm remaking you. I'm reforming you. I'm, I'm making you in my image, and I'm giving you my power, so you don't have to worry about that. If you truly understood the spiritual giant that I want you to be, these puny little attacks wouldn't bother you. You'd be like Jesus standing in front of the greatest power on earth and saying, you're nothing. My Father is everything. I'm here to do, with, do with something. I'm, I'm here to do God's, God's work. That's all I care about, doing God's work. So I'm not about to take this moment to drop down onto your level and start attacking you back the way you've attacked in me. I'm not, I'm not going to do that because I can take a longer view. In 2 Timothy, Paul writing to his protege says this a servant of the Lord must not be argumentative but be gentle to all able to teach and be patient in humility correcting those who are in opposition so perhaps God will grant them repentance so that they might know the truth he said Here, here's, what, here's what he's saying he said you're a servant of the Lord so put that other stuff aside a servant of the Lord is supposed to be gentle patient and they're wrong right when they're attacking they're wrong they're just trying to hide their their fear and they're just trying to hide their hurt anyway if if you can put aside your anger you can reach into the fruit of the spirit for kindness and goodness then maybe you can speak to them in love and maybe you can help lead them to repentance that's not so much better than just fighting back because we're supposed to be more than that we're supposed to be spiritual giants. We need to be gentle 
spiritual giants. The reality is, in the history of the world, no one has ever been argued into the kingdom of heaven. I see people trying on Facebook all the time. But in the history of the world, it's never happened. No one has ever been argued into the kingdom of heaven. But many, many have been led there. It is our job to be the gentle spiritual giants and lead people. Would you all please pray with me?